This is a podcast from Minute Media. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Surely You Can't Be Serious podcast. This is D Graves, and I am here with my friend and co-host, Jason Colvin. What's up, Jason? Today, we are talking about two iconic movies, one from the 70s and one from the 80s. I don't want to brag or anything, but I really do think that you can tell by the way we use our walk that we are women's men with no time to talk. Well, I don't know, man. The way you talk, it makes me feel like dancing. Hopefully you guys will have a great time today as we dive into staying alive and dirty dancing and trying to understand the New York Times effect on men. (laughs) This is our first taste of the summer of 87. We've got kind of a a big summer coming up and dirty dancing kind of hit in August of 87. Yep. So it's not really dead center summer. Yeah, these two movies are 45 years old and 35 years old, respectively, this year. So it's super exciting to cover these two dancing icons. Before we jump in and start talking about the awesomeness that is these two movies, I want to encourage everyone out there to hit the subscribe or follow button on your podcast app. If you are enjoying what we do and we are overwhelmed by how many supporters and listeners we have out there, we would love it if you would visit our Patreon page and consider doing a monthly donation for us. But if you're not able or willing to do that just yet, something totally free that you can do is just hit a review for us, hit the five stars, and hit that follow button. And if you can fit the words night fever or I brought the watermelons into your review, (laughs) we will enter you into a contest to win one of our custom engraved Yeti style cups. So go check out that patreon.com slash Shirley podcast page. Five star review. Tell your friends about us. I read a stat the other day that 40% of people who listen to podcasts listen while they are mowing or gardening or doing stuff around their house. If you're doing stuff while you're listening to us, hit us up. Shoot us a picture. Tell us what you're doing. Okay, D, here's a couple of our friends who took that Toto five-star rating challenge. These guys walked up Mount Kilimanjaro and met the challenge. That's right. Our friend on Twitter, Rusty and Freckles, who just uh, started tweeting us not too terribly long ago, he put, after searching long and hard everywhere from Mount Kilimanjaro to the African Serengeti, I discovered the Surely You Can't Be Serious podcast and I I am addicted. Every podcast is so amazing and it brings back so many memories. I recommend this podcast if you love pop culture. That's fantastic. Yeah. Here's the last one right here from our buddy Big Buck Robley. Due to my job, I travel a lot and as a result, I listen to a lot of podcasts. A few have become favorites, but only one has become an absolute must listen every week. Surely you can't be serious. It is an absolute blast every week to listen to Jason D. explore all the best in the 70s, 80s, and 90s pop culture. Every episode is full of fun facts and obscure trivia that enrich the overall experience. The hosts themselves are obviously friends, and the show has such an easy conversational tone that it's easy to imagine yourself sitting at the local watering hole with them debating the best Toto song. If podcasts were mountain rangers, Surely You Can't Be Serious would be Mount Everest, with a few others reaching the heights of Kilimanjaro, and the rest left standing glumly on the Serengeti Plains, hoping they themselves will one day reach those heights. Here's to many more years of a fantastic podcast. Wow, what a review. We have the best fans in the world. Man. Surely fans, be sure and take that challenge. But enough about us. Let's get to the podcast. All right. Thanks, guys, for those awesome reviews. And now we're moving on to Saturday Night Fever Night. Okay. Saturday Night Fever is the older movie. Yep. Let's start with the older movie. It really begins with a new style of music called disco. (laughs) 
Tell me what disco is, Dee, because I've heard it, I recognize it, but I don't know how to describe it or articulate it. I am not a disco expert, but I can tell you that the origins can be traced to a beat called Four on the Floor, and it's incredibly simple. It is the bass drum on every single beat in 4-4 measure. So you got boom, boom, boom. Boom. And you can hear it. It's like somebody's walking along the sidewalk with a little bit of a strut, and they're going boom, 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 boom. But when you hear that boom, 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 it makes you feel like dancing. Makes me feel like dancing. Come on, dance night away. So what can you tell me about the history of disco? I know a little bit about the history of disco. Okay. Basically, it started in underground clubs. It was typically like a gay club thing. Yeah. And like an R&B black thing. Yeah. If you were black or brown and gay, you went out dancing in the 70s and you liked the four on the floor beat. It was one of those deals where the DJs were so important and they, this is the the mixing tables where they would, they would find uh, some obscure track and it wouldn't be like a play a song, stop, take out a record, put a new one on, play that record. The key to keep people dancing was a never ending beat. Yeah, it's the two turntable method. We talked about it kind of in depth when we were exploring hip hop with our friend David Wright. But yeah, the dance clubs were really that were really doing the disco thing in the early 70s were mostly in New York City or over in LA. It wasn't something that you saw just across the country. What happened was people would go to these clubs, they would hear these obscure songs, and then they would start to request the local radio station to play those songs. Yeah. And so in turn what happened is that the music industry responded to that and started to make music specifically for the discotheques and that's when you have the 70s disco era. Yeah, so disco was... When did it really start to become big? Well, the first heyday of disco was 1974 to 1976. Okay. Also during this time, you had a counter-reaction to disco, right? I mean, I remember seeing people with t-shirts that said, disco sucks. Yeah, in fact, the Chicago White Sox had this big post-ball game party where they burned disco records and it got crazy and people were out of hand and it was nuts. There there were like cherry bombs and big explosions. I mean... I've never, I can't remember in history a time where there was such a violent reaction against a particular style of music. So you said the first wave was between 1974 and 1976. Now the movie we're talking about came out in 77. So if I'm understanding it, disco was on its way out. Like people hated it. It was becoming extremely unpopular, and then they made this movie. It seems like a bad choice. Bad time to make a disco movie. Well, here's the thing, okay? So when you have something that's edgy and cool, uh-huh. and then all of a sudden it's mainstream, and you have floods of you know suburban white people who join the crowd and say, <laughs> oh, this is fun. I like disco. Yeah. It becomes less cool and less edgy. Well, what happened was Saturday Night Fever came along right as disco was dying, and it gave it some rocket fuel to surge it right back into the forefront of everybody's brain. And so it got its second life right there. Awesome. Well, let's talk about how the movie came to be. All right. Yep. So the movie is based upon an article that was called Tribal Rights of the New Saturday Night. Now, this article was written by a guy named Nick Cohn, right? So these are the rabbit holes that I go down. Okay. Nick Cohn's mother, her name was Vera Bordeaux. Okay. She was from Russia. She covered the Russian Revolution. Her mother was like this elite who did not support the revolution, and so she got sent to Siberia. And so this child lost her mother. I think she was ultimately executed. And so she she was a writer who wrote about the Russian Revolution as someone who was adamantly against it. Okay. His dad was professor and writer. His name was Norman Cohn. And he had grown up in England. And then he moves to New York City, right? Okay. And he gets a job with the paper called The Guardian. And they need him to write an article. And so he's heard about this new disco thing that's going on. And he decides to go down to the 2001 Odyssey. Yeah. Sound familiar? Yeah, for sure. It's in the movie, right? Yeah, it's where everything takes place. And so he writes this article called The Tribal Rights of the New Saturday Night. And people know this is going to be a great article. And one of the guys who gets a copy of the article before it's released worldwide is a a guy named Robert Stigwood. Uh-huh. Do you know who Robert Stigwood is? Robert Stigwood is the manager of the Bee Gees. Yeah. 
So he, when he finds out this article is coming along, he's like, we got to get a copy of that before it hits the papers. He reads the article and immediately calls his assistant, Kevin McCormick, and says, hey, we want to get the option on making this article into a movie. He grabbed it before everybody had their chance at it. Yeah, so he reads the article, and it's it's about the life of these New Yorkers who go to these dance clubs and their kind of obsession with how they look and their indifference to kind of the craziness that's going on. There's only one problem. Yeah? It is all completely fabricated. What?! So nobody knows this. Like everybody thinks this is a legitimate factual article that this guy Nick Cohn has written. And they've decided, okay, we're going to option this article. Like, I mean, when the article came out, there was people constantly calling, trying to get rights to it. And it was too late. Stigwood and McCormick had already gotten the rights to it because they thought this is our vehicle for our band, the Bee Gees, to become big again. He nailed that one. Well, the problem is, is that what happened was Nick Cohn went down to 2001 Odyssey. He walked close to the door and a fight was breaking out. It comes out under the sidewalk and somebody vomits all over his <laughs> pants. And he's like, heck with this. And he goes back to Manhattan. I he think I've got walked, enough to write an article. He never walked into the club. <laughs> he said while he was standing there watching the fight happen and this guy puking on his pants... <laughs> He sees this kid standing at the doorway who's just kind of watching, you know, eating some popcorn or something, indifferent to everything that's going on. Just like, hey, it's another Saturday night. <laughs> that's hilarious. <laughs> and so when he grew up in Derry, there were these kind of rebellious kids called mods, and he knew several of them. And so he took what he knew of the mods in England, uh-huh. took those characters that he knew and put them in the dance clubs of New York City and pretended like it had all really happened. See, this is crazy to me. I did read that in the mid-90s, he finally revealed that this is all made up. 20 years later. I guess I made it all up, guys. 20 years later. And he said at the time, he was like, I could couldn't even believe that people believed that this was real, that this was not fictitious. I mean, reading the article, it sounds like fiction. But he said, I was just a young kid. I didn't have a lot of money. I didn't think anybody really care about this article. So it didn't bother me that I was completely lying. Wow. Yeah. Wow. I know this is not just some nobody guy. <laughs> this guy was considered the father of rock criticism, right? Wow. He was he did a review of the rough mix of Tommy by the Who. Okay. And he was like, guys, I don't think you got a number one hit on here. And at that, Pete Townsend said, well, I've got this song called Pinball Wizard. Do you think <laughs> we should put that on there? Because he knew that Nick Cohn was a pinball fan and they, and history is made. Nick Cohn wrote this book called I'm Still the Greatest says Johnny D'Angelo. This was the inspiration for David Bowie's The Rise and Fall of Ziggy Stardust. I mean this guy is huge and then in the early 80s he gets arrested and prosecuted on a drug trafficking case for bringing in four million dollars of Indian heroin. Wait, uh, wait, wait. Yes. Nick Cohn was arrested for bringing in a bunch of Indian heroin? Four $4 million of Indian heroin. But he refused to testify, and without him making admissions on the stand, they had to drop the charges to simple possession. He got probation and a fine. That was it. Whoa. <laughs> so, Kevin McCormick, Robert Stigwood have got the rights to this story. They don't have a big budget. It's about a $4 million, $4.5 million budget thereabouts, right? I got three and a half. Yeah, it's not much. Everybody in this movie is nobodies, right. except for one, John Travolta, who was from Welcome Back, Carter. But he was big at the time. I mean, he was on the cover of all the teen magazines. Everybody knew him from Welcome Back, Carter. He was the teen heartthrob of the day. But he had only done one movie, and it was a made-for-TV movie called Boy in the Bubble. All right, so Robert Stigwood and Kevin McCormick have the rights to this article that Nick Cohn has written. They give it to Nick Cohn and said, we want you to make a screenplay out of it. He gives it a first draft, sends it to them. They're like, okay, thank you for your time. Right. And then they hire this guy named Norman Wexler to actually write the screenplay. Right. You, are you familiar with Norman Wexler? Okay. So uh, he hasn't written that many movies, but... Um, of the movies that he's written, one of them is Joe, which is an interesting movie that I saw when I was a kid. It has Peter Boyle and Susan Sarandon in it as very young folks. Wow. He wrote Mandingo, Mandingo. which of course is what Django Unchained is kind of loosely based on. Okay. 
and he wrote a little movie that came out almost the same time as movie we just got finished talking about, starring Mr. Al Pacino, movie called Serpico. Okay. That makes total sense. He's got yes. the, the Serpico poster on his wall, and when he's dancing, she's like, kiss me, kiss me. Yeah. And he kissed her. Oh, I just kissed Al Pacino. <laughs> He's like, I don't look like Al Pacino. <laughs> okay, so Norman Wexler is writing the script. Okay. And then they're like, okay, we need a director. Who can we get? And they get the guy who directed Rocky. Yeah, so they hired John Advildson. He was the guy who directed Rocky. I mean, this guy was scorching hot. Yeah, absolutely kid on the scene, like Mr. On Fire right then. And so they've got, hey, they've got a good director. We've got this guy who's a teen heartthrob who's interested in being the lead role in the thing. But the problem is that they're not getting along because Advildson wants to make... Tony a better guy. He wants him to be a guy who's doing favors for people. And John Travolta's like, hey, that's a nice idea, but that's not what I signed up to do. He wants the dirty, nasty Tony. Okay, let's stop right there because John Avelson just came off of Rocky. Yeah. People freaking love Rocky. Yeah. I love Rocky. Of course. It's a feel-good story. We love Rocky. Yeah. Tony Manero, not that likable of a character. No. I wouldn't have minded if they softened his edges a little bit. The the movie is obviously hugely famous. Yes. And iconic. Yes. Would it have been as much so if Tony had been a little more nice? I think it would have been even better. Well, maybe. Okay. Who knows what the world thinks at this point, right? Right, 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 right. Right? I mean, because we know that the article was really about the indifference of these type of folks, right? They were self-obsessed. They were the me generation. That was what the 70s and disco was. I mean, you're coming off Vietnam and hippies and let's save the world. And you're having the reaction to that of, you know what? Screw the world. Save me. This is about me and my time. And I want to have fun and dance and get laid. F the future. (laughs) It's Saturday night. Right. All right, D, let's take a quick break and just hear from our friends at Vintage Video Pod. On the Vintage Video Podcast, we'll be reviewing every single wide release of the 1980s in chronological order. Over 250 episodes to enjoy and thousands more to come. John enters the store now to order another can of ether. I picture him outside like Homer with the gasohol. <laughs> when for you, when for me. I also like to think about it, that the kids renew their vow not to talk about the murder. By, by murdering someone. <laughs> <laughs> They're taking a blood oath with someone else's blood. This stuff is seven times more powerful than uranium. And yeah. they, they open up the vault that it's contained and not wearing any kind of protective nope. gear. Yeah. And it's wooden crates. Wooden crates. It's like the guys in Chernobyl picking up the graphite rocks yeah. and going, man, because there's rocks. Hugging the elephant foot. <laughs> just like, oh, this thing's smooth. It's so warm. He turns to dial the number from the classified ad without even thinking about the numbers. <laughs> we know this because we can hear his thoughts and he's talking about how AJ was right that ninjas are misdirecting him. They're misdirecting him. I really wish that he'd turn to the fundamental like, six, six. Vintage Video. We're rewatching the 80s so you don't have to. Love it. Definitely go subscribe to that podcast. They're great fun. They do kind of what we do over there. Check them out. Vintage Video Pod. So, your lead actor and your director, who are both huge, are disagreeing. Yep. One of them has never been in a movie in his life, and one of them is about to get nominated for an Oscar. Yeah. Which one do you get rid of? Uh, the one nominated for an Oscar. Right. So they bring him in to tell him. They're, they're like, um, okay, John, hey, love you. Don't want this to hurt our friendship, but we've got good news and bad news. <laughs> the good news is we found out you've been nominated as Best Director for Rocky. Yay! The bad news is you're fired. Oh. <laughs> He's like, you still want to be friends? <laughs> Gosh. So, Oscar nominated and ultimately Best Picture winning director is canned at the outset. And so they have to go and get another director. They still don't have a fully functional script yet either. Norman Wexler's working on it, but it is not completed at this point. And so the, the guy they end up with is this guy named John Battle, who has done Zilch before this. Sure. I mean, he's, I I don't know, he sneezed on a camera once or something. (laughs) He had mostly done TV. His only film credit before this hadn't even been released at the time they gave him the job. His sole film credit was the Bingo Long Traveling All-Stars and Motor Kings. Oh, iconic. (laughs) 
<laughs> yeah. So it was released while Saturday Night Fever was already well into production. So they are literally taking somebody who's never done anything motion picture wise, has only worked in television. But they think, hey, John Travolta worked in television. Why not? It's almost like the Kim Basinger Batman thing. We're like, number one, who's available? Number two, who's cheap? Number three, can they be here tomorrow? Right. And so you have this completely inexperienced director working with a teen star who's never been in a movie before with a script that isn't completely done on a very low budget. It doesn't sound like the recipe for success to It me. really does not. And on a topic that is dying. This is the decline of disco. Up until the release of the movie, they thought they had mistimed this. They thought they were releasing this movie one year too late. I'll tell you this. We're going to cover movie to movie for these episodes, but our next episodes are going to be soundtrack to soundtrack. Right. And so I can tell you that John Badham said, I looked at this like it was a musical. And it was a different kind of musical. It wasn't a musical where people broke into song. It was just the bits of the story are broken up by these musical numbers and dance numbers, which is what you get in a musical. That's true. And it may have been the key to the success of this movie. Yeah, we talked about this a little bit when we talked about Footloose last summer. About every 10 minutes or so... A new song happens, it juices the scene, it sets the mood, and it just kind of leads you down this trail song to song to song to song. Here in two weeks, we're going to do soundtrack to soundtrack. But I can tell you this, the three key ingredients to the success of Saturday Night Fever, threefold. Number one, the article by Nick Cone, Tribal Rights of a New Saturday Night. Number two is John Travolta. And number three is the Bee Gees. It's the Bee Gees. So... It's going to be hard talking about two of the three and not the third. I got to say, you have to have all of those ingredients, but I think you could have had a different actor. You, I mean, obviously the the article is completely fabricated, but if you take the Bee Gees out of this mix, you don't have a winner. I think you're right about that. I think the Bee Gees are the most important ingredient here. So be sure and tune in on our next couple of episodes to find out what we think about each and every song and the stories behind them. Yes, for sure. Okay, before we get into casting on Saturday Night Fever, let's talk about a movie that came along 10 years later that was also about dancing. Dirty Dancing. Sounds like a porno. <laughs> That's what Bill Medley said. <laughs> That's what Patrick Swayze said, too. He said, it sounds like a movie about strippers. I can tell you, in my church, I mean, the title, Dirty Dancing, mm-hmm. it raised a few eyebrows, trust me. Yeah. This story begins back in the 50s with a uh, young girl named Eleanor. Okay. Who would go to the Catskills with her family. Her dad was a doctor. Right. She had a sister named Frances. And up until she was 20, everyone called her Baby. Baby. This is kind of autobiographical, I would say. Right. So when she was a kid, not only did she go on vacations with her families in the Catskills, but she also danced. As a matter of fact, she was a mambo dancing champion. Mm -hmm. And so she was heavy into the field of dance, but then she went to college and became a writer. And she wrote novels, books, and she also wrote a script for a movie called It's My Turn. Yeah, this one was a Michael Douglas film. Yeah, Michael Douglas and Jill Claiborne. Okay. So in this script, Michael Douglas's character and Jill Claiborne's character are in this kind of affair. Yeah. And Eleanor has written this dirty dancing pre-sex scene. Yes. She's excited about it because it's something she's familiar with. She Dancing is her first love, right? Right. And then as they're making the movie, they get to that scene and they're like, yeah, we'll get that and go straight to the sex. <laughs> so she's a little irritated by this. Uh-huh. And she's like, they cut my dirty dancing scene. And so she thinks, I'm going to have a movie where that is a scene that cannot be cut. It's got to be the main part of the movie. Yeah. And she goes for quite a while trying to find somebody to make this new idea for her into reality, into a film. And she can't find anybody to do it. Right. And so there's this girl that she remembers that she used to double date with that had mentioned that, hey, I'm a film producer, right? Her name was Linda Gottlieb. Okay. Now, Linda Gottlieb says, I'm a film producer, but her credits are pretty sparse and unknown the movie that she produced right before this was the electric grandmother the electric grandmother the electric grandmother another iconic movie yes (laughs) 
<laughs> I remember watching this movie on TV when I was a little what? kid. I, I, it was like a robotic grandmother. The inventor was Edward Herman. Yeah, Lost Boys. And, He's Max. Yeah, and Gilmore Girls. Yeah. Which, of course, we know that Kelly Bishop is... Was this is wife. Gilmore, that's right. It all ties together, right? Okay. Wow. So Linda Gottlieb has done next to nothing. Eleanor Bergstein has done one movie which wasn't really well regarded. And so they decide to meet for lunch. And so Linda's like, tell me your idea. Eleanor's like, okay, so it's a story about two sisters who go to the Catskills on vacation with their parents. And Linda's like, yawn. Snore, yeah. Okay, why don't you tell me more about you? We don't really know each other that well. Tell me more about yourself. She's like, well, you know, I was called baby until I was 20, and I went to the Catskills with my parents, and I was a Mambo champion, and, um, you know, at night we would go down to the basement and we would dirty dance. And Linda Gottlieb said, what did you just say? She's like, well, we would dirty dance. And she goes, that is the title of the movie. And she's like, what? She said, dirty dancing is a million dollar title. I don't want to title it that. I don't have anything to do with the main story. She goes, we'll worry about the story later. The title is Dirty Dancing. That's fantastic. And so she was wrong. It was not a million dollar idea. It was a $214 (laughs) million idea. So she's like, we've got to make this happen. So all these bad movies that Linda had been making, she had been doing as an employee of MGM. She was a producer that worked for MGM, right? Okay. And so when she gets this idea, she has Eleanor write the script. She's got the perfect title. Once it's done, they bring it to the president of MGM, Frank Yoblins. And Frank is like, I love it. And they're like, really? And he's like, yes, we have to make this movie. And they're like, perfect. Everything is falling into place just like they want it. And then the next day, Frank gets fired. (laughs) How many times does this happen? (laughs) It seems like this has happened several times. Yeah, it it happened with Dumb and Dumber, right? The exact same scenario. I love it. Let's do it. Oh, yeah, yeah, that guy got fired. (laughs) And so again... Same type of weird scenario. She has the rights to this script for a year. Okay. Until they revert to MGM. Okay. And so Linda Gottlieb is now on a deadline. We have to get this movie made. I love this idea. I love this movie. We have to get it made, but we have to find a different production company. So she goes to one production company after another, after another. Eleanor is having to demonstrate dirty dancing in front of a room full of men, (laughs) directors, board of director type of guys. And everyone is saying no. Uh Over 40 times. No, no, no. Then... What happens with scripts is they get sent off to lower production companies. Well, there's this lower quote-unquote production company called Vestron Video. Okay. Now, in the early 80s, videos were really just the way you saw pornos. And so Vestron Video said, okay, we're going to do regular movies on video and we're going to be the distributor. So they they had been distributing other big production companies' VHS tapes. Yeah, okay. And they made themselves a nice chunk of change doing this. But right about the time that all of this is happening, the big studios are like, why are we outsourcing this? There's a ton of money that these guys are making. Let's just do it ourselves. And so Vestron was about to lose this business, but it had this nice nest egg set up. And so they said, well, if the production companies are going to start doing VHS distribution, we are going to start doing movie production. Good for them. And so they're starting to get all of these scripts that have been roundly rejected by everybody else. And so they hire a guy who made a couple of really bad movies to be their movie producer guy. And his name was Mitchell Connell. Okay. And so Mitchell and his assistant, Dory Bernstein, who has no movie experience at all at the time, are going through scripts every single night. Just reading, reading, and it's all trash. Because these are scripts that have just been rejected over and over again. And so one weekend, Mitchell comes across this script called Dirty dancing. He's like, oh gosh, then don't they know we're not doing pornos anymore? And so he starts reading the script and I think a key idea when you're reading a script is you have to be able to see it in your head. Sure. Right? Yep. Well, as it turns out, Mitchell Connell grew up going to the Catskills with his parents on vacation every uh, summer. Wow. And so when he starts reading the script, he's got 
the images in his head. It's bringing him back to when he was a kid. And not only can he see it, he loves it. All of the little intricacies that are key in the script, he identifies with. So he calls Linda Gottlieb the next day and he's like, Hi, my name is Mitchell Connold. I'm from Vestron Video and I'm interested in making your movie. And Linda Gottlieb is like, prank caller. Yeah, really? And, and he's like, no, I, I'm serious. And we we have money. We have close to $4 million that we can put towards this movie if we get it approved. And she's like, let's go. Wow. She had lost in every other circumstance this, even though it's these bad video, like B video movies that have, this company is the one that's offering to make the movie. She's like, let's get it done. At least we'll get our movie made, right? Yeah. And so they go to Vestron and they're like, okay, we need a director. Do you guys have any ideas? And they're like, well, it's a dance movie. And we know this guy named Emil Ardolino that has done a bunch of PBS specials on dancing. <laughs> and like, are you, you serious right now? Has he ever directed a feature length movie? No. But he really knows the dance world. Like, he was a stage actor, and he's done lots of dance and choreography. Oh, by the way, he did just make a short documentary called He Makes Me Feel Like Dancing. It won the Oscar. It won the Oscar? Yeah? Okay. Wow. Let's give him a shot. This is insane, man. This is crazy. When they had initially offered it to Emil, he was on jury duty. <laughs> and he, so he's like, he sends them a letter that says, I'm sequestered on jury duty, but please don't give this script to anyone else. And so they talk to him. They love him. They think he's perfect. They're like, okay, we want you to come and tell your vision to our board of directors because we still have to get this approved by the board. And so Emil comes in and opens his mouth and goes, uh, 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 he can't speak. He has a panic attack. He leaves the room not having said a word. And everybody's just looking around, not knowing what to do. But I don't know what divine intervention happened. But the board said, you know what? He got scared. He's won an Oscar for a dance documentary. Who else are we going to get? Yeah. And that's how Emil got the job. Oh, my gosh. You're blowing my mind, man. Awesome. You are blowing my mind. So the way that Eleanor Bergstein wrote this script is that she went through all of her old vinyl records from back when she was dancing in the 50s. Okay. And she made herself a mixtape. And she was like, I'm going to pick out my favorite songs from that time, and I'm going to write as I'm listening to my mixtape, right? Yes. So then she writes the script, and when she and Linda start shopping it around to all of these producers, she is giving them the tape and saying, listen to this, because this is the this is the soundtrack. This is everything that I use. And all of the producers are like, no, no, we don't want this. No, we don't want this. But then a few months will go by, and she'll get a call from one of the directors, and they're like, hey, um, my EB's Dirty Dancing mixtape has worn out. Can you send me another <laughs> She's like, you realize that you're asking me for the soundtrack? to the movie that you don't want to make. That's awesome. Yeah, but it's a great soundtrack. It is a great soundtrack, and we're going to talk about that here in a couple of weeks. The story that you're describing, though, reminds me of Matt Reeves writing The Batman while listening to Nirvana, There's Something in the Way. Yeah. It just sets the tone. It puts you where you need to be to appreciate the story. Yeah, I mentioned when we talked about Jaws and Jurassic Park, the relationship between Steven Spielberg and John Williams, that Steven Spielberg, back when he was nobody, just trying to write scripts, bought a John John Williams soundtrack and that's what he listened to whenever he was writing his scripts that's right what is it like the Avengers or something like that it's something some Paul Newman movie the revelers reveliers the reveliers wow that's impressive right there yeah okay so we've got a production company ish yes <laughs> right we've got a script we've got a director yeah now we have to worry about casting and getting the rights to the music yeah and that last one is a tough one yes for sure. So earlier, like three years before this movie was being made, The Big Chill came out. Uh-huh. And before The Big Chill, people didn't really realize how much money there was in old music style soundtracks. Mm-hmm. But The Big Chill happened and it becomes one of the best-selling albums of 1983. And suddenly people are like, um, hey, if you're going to use my song in one of your movies, you're going to need to pay me. And you're going to need to pay me a lot. Right. And so it went, become, it went from being a relatively affordable thing to a very expensive thing. And if they didn't like the idea of the movie, they could say no. So... 
all very tricky and she had a lot of songs that she felt like were absolutely integral to the movie itself had to be there she wouldn't budge we are going to have a great time dissecting the dirty dancing soundtrack here in a couple of weeks just a quick thing on that and they hired this guy named jimmy einer and so he comes back a few weeks later he says i kissed phil specter's big toe <laughs> and said i have to have this music and he got it wow and you're blowing my mind left and right Okay. We ready to talk casting? Yeah, that brings us to casting. Let's jump back to Saturday Night Fever. Back to Saturday Night Fever. We talked about how John Travolta was the only known actor that they hired. His manager actually had read the article, Tribal Rights of the New Saturday Night, and thought, man, if they make this into a movie, you're perfect for this role. Right. So he already had his eye kind of on it. And like you said, John Travolta was a star from the show, Welcome Back, Cotter. Welcome back. Your dreams were your ticket Welcome back. Mr. there. (laughs) Vinnie Barbarino. Up your nose with a rubber hose. Yeah, Vinnie Barbarino. Oh, oh, oh. <laughs> we know John Travolta now on this side of history as a major movie star. Yeah. But this is, like you said, he had done that TV movie, The Boy in the Bubble. His girlfriend, her name was Diana Highland. She actually developed breast cancer during the filming of this movie. She she died. She passed away during yeah. the, the making of this movie. They had to shut down production so he could go to her funeral. Yeah, and it was a big deal. She was the one who had told him he needed to do the movie. She's like, you've got the moves. The music on this is going to be great. You need to do this. I know that I'm going through this, but you need to go and make this movie. So listen to this. Robert Stigwood, we talked about him being the producer of this movie. Yep. He was also the manager of the Bee Gees. Yep. He had been a producer on Broadway, and John Travolta had auditioned for him when he was 17 years old for Jesus Christ Superstar. Wow. And at that time, he thought, that guy's a movie star. Wow. So John Travolta had been a dancer on stage. He had danced in musicals and other Broadway things on stage, but it was never disco. He had never danced on a dance floor. He had not done any kind of disco, but he was still a dancer. And so you brought in some choreographers. You have Lester Wilson and you had uh, Denny Torino, who are both world-class choreographers. Denny had worked with him multiple hours a day for weeks straight to get all these dance moves in. And when Lester Wilson showed up, John Travolta started dancing, and Lester's like, I don't really know that I got anything I could teach you. Wow. John Travolta is a phenomenal dancer. And in that time of dancing, he dropped 20 pounds, and he was not a heavy guy to begin with. I I love to watch you dance. Can I wipe your forehead? (laughs) (laughs) But he's like, I wanted them to love John, not for his character, but just because they love to watch him dance. Yeah. And so I thought that was really cool. Well, they certainly weren't going to love him because of his character. God, he's such a turd. In he the- is a douchebag. <laughs> a bag of douche. <laughs> but his friends are even worse. Yes. Okay, so now they're looking for the part of Stephanie. So Stephanie, they looked at Jessica Lange, mm-hmm. Kathleen Quinlan, Amy Irving, okay. and Carrie Fisher. Carrie Fisher. Princess Leia herself. That would have been an interesting one. Okay. These two movies, Star Wars and Saturday Night Fever, come out at the same time. That'd been quite a year for Carrie Fisher. Yeah. So they end up hiring this girl named Karen Lynn Gorney. Okay. Do you know how she got the job? She shared a cab with the producer's nephew. (laughs) This blows my mind. Yeah, they're both going for the same cab. They're like, you want to just share? Yeah, that's fine. They sit down. She's like, so what do you do? And he's like, "Uh, I'm working on this movie. Oh, really? Am I in it? (laughs) And he's like, "Uh, well, they do need a woman lead. That was it. She gets out of the cab. She calls her agent. She's like, get on this right now. Fate. Yes. Now, she was nine years older than John Travolta, or is nine years older than John Travolta is. And she's playing a young 20s girl. Yeah. 
she looked a little bit older than the part that she was playing. Not you bad. Know, she took some slack because most people weren't that impressed with her dancing. Uh-huh. I can see that. I can see that especially when I compare it to Cynthia Rhodes, for example. Yeah. Cynthia Rhodes is freaking unbelievable. I know nothing about dancing. Right. Yeah. She well, blows me away. The grace is palpable. Yes. So anyway, the higher Karen Lynn Gorney, like you said, she's nine years older. She did have some dance experience, but she had trouble keeping up with John Travolta. Yeah. And in truth, he kind of buries her in this movie. Yes, I he mean, does. She gets swept up in his wake, in my opinion. Yeah. I mean, he's a strong lead. He can carry her. Yeah. And he does. And he does. Now then, the girl who plays Annette, her name is Donna Pescal. Okay. I, I remember watching her in Angie. It was an old like sitcom from the 80s. Really? Yeah. She was in Angie. We've talked about Angie before. Yes, we have. How, what was that connection? That was Robert Hayes, who was in... Airplane. Airplane. And the lady who wrote the song, the, the theme song for Angie, is the singing nun from Airplane. Oh my gosh! <laughs> Be sure and go back and check out. I mean, that, that's talking. That's our second series of episodes: airplane versus spaceballs. Be sure and check that out Dude, for more random knowledge trivia. Your nonsense. recall is blowing me away today. <laughs> okay, so they hired Donna Pescal to play the part of Annette. Yeah, but they thought initially she was too pretty. Yeah. So how did they combat that? Just put on some weight. Go, why don't you just go put on forty pounds? Yeah. You won't be as pretty when you're fat. Yeah, she's still pretty though. I, she this, is. She is just the eyes. I mean, she's she's, she's so she's sweet. She's nice. She's likable, and she, they just treat her like crap the entire she's movie. She's the only redeemable character in the whole movie, and she's the one who probably is going to have post traumatic stress disorder after it's all over. Oh, just listening to her sob on that bridge. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Okay. So we'll get there. Uh, we'll get there when we talk about the movies. But not only did she put on the weight, she had to go back to her old Brooklyn accent that she had spent so long getting rid of <laughs> in acting school. Had to relearn that so that she could she could also be kind of dumb sounding. You know, Donna Pescal and Val Basaglio, who plays Frank Senior. Yes. They both show back up in The Sopranos. Oh, nice. So, I did not know that. Kind of a nice little throwback there. I will tell you this. Uh-huh. When I saw Frank Jr.'s picture on the mantle, uh-huh. I was like, that's the young priest from The Exorcist. Yeah? It's not. It it's, looks like it, It's though. a different guy, but my gosh, he looks it exactly really does. like him. Yeah. Yep. So she auditioned for that role six times, right? Okay. Three for the first director, uh-huh. and then he got fired, and the second director's <laughs> like, I want you to bring her into audition. She's like, really? Again? Yeah. She auditioned three times for him as well. Wow. Okay. Now then, listen to this. Yeah. Ray Liotta and David Caruso both auditioned for the role of Joey. Wow. Okay. R- Ray Liotta from Goodfellas. I know. He would have been very young. Very young. Yeah, okay. Okay. Now then, most of the cast... Joseph Kelly, Shelley Bad, Denny Dillon, Fran Drescher. Fran Drescher. Fran is, Dresser. Is that her first movie appearance? It is. All of these people, it's their first movie appearance. I mean, she became a stand-up comedian and then went on to become the nanny and has a super annoying voice that she's well known for. But in this movie, she didn't have that voice. She is smoking hot in she this movie. She is young and pretty and speaks well. Hey. hey. Are you as good in bed as you are on that dance floor? Well, are you? You know what else? She's not wearing any underwear during that scene. Well, nobody did back then. I guess not. It was not. the 70s. Yes. Nobody wants a panty line. Who wants something getting in the way when you're going out to the car in between Bee Gees numbers? <laughs> nobody. So this is not really a casting-related thing, but I thought I'd throw this in there real quick. Okay. The guy who plays Tony Manero's dad. Uh-huh. When he's sitting at the table and he's got the uh, he's got the big napkin around his shirt because he doesn't want anything on his shirt. He's not hungry. And, he, and the guy's mad and he's like, you're going to eat, right? Right. You're going to eat. Yeah. So he's sitting there and he, he starts yelling at people. And John Travolta's character, Tony, talks back to him yeah. and he gets smacked yeah. upside the head. Yeah. That was a total improv line. He's like, will you watch the hair? Just watch the hair. He hit my hair. I work really hard and, and he hits it. Yeah, he said, John Travolta said, when he hit me, he really hit me. It really hurt. <laughs> it and they had spent a long time on my hair, and I thought, well, that would be a funny thing for me to say right then. And it's it's one of the best lines in the movie. We just washed the hair. Yeah. You know, I work on my hair a long time, and you, and you hit it. He hits my hair. So let's talk about casting for Dirty Dancing now. Hey. Uh, just a little bit 
This is kind of crazy. Okay, so we got a very low, again, very low, low budget movie. Four yes. and a half million dollars to make the movie. Limited amount of time to get it done. New director, new writer, and our only hope for the cast, given the money that we're probably going to have to spend to get the songs that we want, is to get some relatively unknown actors. Yes. So, let's talk about Johnny Castle first. Okay. Okay? Yep. This is who they wanted. Okay. Val Kilmer. Okay, yeah. I, I mean, he, that. He, at that time, Yeah. he's the hunk. He's yeah. studly. He's coming off Top Gun. Okay. He's hot or yeah. whatever. Yeah. Not interested in playing the hunk, though. No. No, checked himself out. No, not for me. Okay. Okay? He had some good movies. I have Top Secret, he danced, so I can I can see that, yeah. Okay. Billy Zane. He was the top contender. 20 years old. He It was between Billy Zane and Patrick Swayze. It was between those two guys. Linda Gottlieb loved Billy Zane. Thought he was the next Marlon Brando. Like, she just thought he was the best. But as Eleanor Bergstein describes it, he looked like he learned to dance really wonderfully for his bar mitzvah. Yeah. He's not hes not a smooth dancer. As good looking as a guy he is, he has not got the pop and lock down. He is hes very awkward looking when he dances. Well, so first of all, he's barely out of his teens. Yeah. He's a good looking guy, but he's still a few years away. You know, Titanic is 97. its yeah. He's got some time to come into his own a little bit, right? Yeah, right. So they're, they're looking through resumes first, right? Okay, go ahead. And what Eleanor Bergstein says is, I'm looking for a guy with hooded eyes. You know, like, yeah, we got the shadows over the eyes, right? Yep. And so she's just looking at the eyes as she's flipping through these resumes. And she comes to Patrick Swayze's picture, and she's like, that's it. Those are the eyes I want right there. She flips the resume over, and in big, bold letters, it says, no dancing. She's like, well, crap. Throws it to the side. Okay, keep looking. So that's how they get Billy Zane in there. That's how they get all the other guys who came in. And then, as it turns out, Emil comes to her and he says, Hey, you know, I noticed that you didn't call Patrick Swayze on this deal. And she's like, Oh, but his face was so wonderful. I just, it says no dancing. And then he's like, Well, I know his mother. Um, she's the dance teacher in the state of Texas. Yes. Like she's the most famous dance teacher in the state. And he grew up dancing. I've seen him in multiple things that he dances. I don't know why it says no dancing on there. Well, here's why. He's a football player. Yes. And playing football in high school, he hurt his knee. Significant knee injury. And he didn't want to be known as a dancer. He could still dance a little bit, but it was hard on him. And so he wanted to be known for his acting abilities. And so that's why he wrote No Dancing. And if you'd seen him in anything before that, you'd seen him maybe dancing in a beer commercial. Okay. Or he was doing some roller skate dancing in like his first movie. Yes. But... Then you saw him in Red Dawn and The Outsiders. No dancing in that. Right. So I can see how they didn't know, hey, this is the perfect guy for this movie, for this part. Okay. Let's let's just talk about Patrick Swayze for a second. Okay. okay? He is the key to this movie, in my opinion. No question. Okay. You have to have somebody who is masculine. Yes. Studly. Yes. Great dancer. Yes. Sometimes those don't go well together. Sure. In Texas in the 80s, a guy saying, oh, yeah, I'm a dancer meant, okay, well, have fun with your flowers. I mean, that was that was it. That was well, That's right. But he grew up with it, and he knew it, and he was good at it. Now, there's probably lots and lots of guys that are in that category. It's just it was a bad perception that people had back in the South back then. Patrick Swayze is so huge, and he later is he's an action star. Yeah. He plays Bodie in Point Break, one of the coolest characters of all time. Yeah. He plays Dalton in Roadhouse. Yeah. This guy is a masculine guy. He's muscled up. He's strong. He's tough. When he beats up Robbie, you're like, whoa, this guy beat the crap out of somebody. I thought you'd be taller. <laughs> I thought he was going to pull Robbie's throat out right there. <laughs> was time not to be nice. <laughs> so Patrick Swayze, huge, huge get. Okay? Right. So, Eleanor Burstein also loves Jennifer Grey. She does. So, here's what happened when Jennifer Grey comes in for her audition. Her dad forces her to come and basically pushes her into the audition space. And she's like, okay, okay, wish me luck, daddy. And comes in and they're like, nope, uh, we're already there. We found her. Here it is. Curly oh. hair. This is what Eleanor Bergstein wanted because she had curly hair growing up. She wanted a curly-haired, petite, baby-faced girl. And here's this girl who just called her father daddy as she walked in she was she immediately was the perfect choice but the producers weren't as convinced 
Okay. Do you know who the producers, the Vestron video producer, <laughs> suggested as the as the lead? Sharon Stone. No. Winona Ryder. No. Sarah Jessica Parker. No. What do you got? Pia Zadora. Pia Zadora? Pia Zadora. They're like, you know who'd be perfect for this part? Pia Zadora. The sex kitten, sex bomb, <laughs> whatever you want to call her, with... Very low acting ability. That that's who they decided they wanted. They wanted them to try to cast. And like, okay, we'll we'll think about it. Yeah, not so much. All right. Wow, that's a name I was not expecting to hear. Yeah. Winona Ryder, Sharon Stone, and Sarah Jessica Parker were up for the part of Baby. Yes. Sharon Stone. That would have been interesting. Innocence. Not at all. Not so much. No. Sarah Jessica Parker. She was the other top runner. It was basically, it was Billy Zane, Sarah Jessica Parker, Patrick Swayze, and Jennifer Grey. And they mixed them all up to see how they would play off of each Uh other, right? uh Now, what's interesting, this is a little kind of weird sidebar, this weird connection. At the time, Jennifer Grey was dating her co-star from the movie that had just come out the year before called Ferris Bueller's Day Off. Yeah, Mr. Matthew Broderick. Yeah, so she was dating Matthew Broderick at the time. Now, sad story, as this movie was about to come out, like just before its premiere, she and Matthew Broderick were in the UK and they had a plan for the day, rented a car, went out driving, not sure what happened, but they went across the line, struck another car and killed a mother and daughter instantly at the scene. You know, where where are you going to be after that? You're not going to care about some low-budget movie that you made. Right. You're going to be extremely distraught after all this, Yes, for sure. So... You don't see a whole lot from Jennifer Grey about this movie. My guess is that it's because of the bad feelings that come along with it. She had surgery in 2009 to, to repair damage in her spine that she was still dealing with. Yeah. So this is an ongoing thing for her. Yeah, the movie is kind of known for having a cursed set, and it kind of followed her even past production. Now, the interesting thing is Matthew Broderick and she, of course, eventually break up, and he ends up marrying... Sarah Jessica Parker. Nuts. That is crazy. Okay, before I get off of Jennifer Grey and Patrick Swayze, mm-hmm. they had worked together in a movie you might remember called Red Dawn. Wolverines! Here's what I know about Red Dawn. Great young ensemble cast. It's what would happen if the Russians invaded Middle America. It's a great 1984 America versus the Russians movie. Okay, here's what else I know. From that movie, Patrick Swayze and Jennifer Grey couldn't stand each other yeah when they were trying to decide who to cast she said please anybody but patrick uh-huh they had to go to him they're like hey you know this is a problem you're perfect but she's perfect too and so you know I don't, we don't know what happened he says listen i'm not gonna tell you that i'm taking this part i'm not sure that i am but let me go talk to her uh-huh and so the only thing that i know is that they went in together yep Spent about half an hour talking. Both came out with red eyes yep. and had resolved whatever the problem was. Now, obviously, they still had some issues along the way they on did. the set. They did. But it kind of played like passion is what it played like. Yes, that's exactly right. I heard the producers talking that sometimes angst plays really well as passion. They were a little bit angry at each other about mm-hmm. half the time. And since there's always that emotion there, it felt like passion. When they got together and did the screen test together, mm-hmm. everybody loved it. Like they had the sizzle and the pop and the screen test. And they thought, man, these, look at these people. They chemistry, chemistry, chemistry. Yeah. And so as the movie progressed and they would get irritated with each other, you actually have that great scene where he's running his hand down the back of her arm and she starts cracking up. Yep. And he clearly is irritated. Frustrated, yes. They had done take after take after take and she's cracking up and it's pissing him off. Yep. Same sequence where the bang heads together. Yes. That also really happened. <laughs> like so much of it was stuff that just happened along the way. But here's what else also just kind of spontaneously happened. Yes. The scene where they're lip syncing and crawling towards each other on the floor. That was a complete improvisation scene. They just put it on and started. They both loved the song and knew the song. And it's one of the best scenes in the movie. To her slinking towards him and him playing the air guitar. How do you I'm, call your lover boy? It's great that as actors that they could go there. That they could find not only those moments that things were going wrong that they caught. But when things went really right and they caught that too. Yeah. 
As the movie progressed, they started to like face off before every scene. It was contentious. Yeah. And so the producers finally had to take them both aside, and they showed them the screen test. Right. And I said, guys, look at this. That was Emil Artelino who would do that. He knew when it was time to go back and say, hey, guys, remember our rehearsal. Remember how it was then. We need to bring that back. Jennifer Grey's sense of humor, yeah. to me, it offsets Patrick Swayze's intensity. The scene where they're dancing together <laughs> when she comes in to rescue and she misses the lift and she gives the old thumb slide thing. <laughs> I, it, that is so freaking funny. I thought you were going to talk about when they were very first dancing together at the first dirty dancing scene and like the song finishes and he walks off and she's still dancing around and then realizes he's gone and kind of awkwardly bebops around. Okay. She's funny. She's the perfect actress to play baby. She's baby faced. She's young. I had trouble initially getting over the fact that she was Jeannie Bueller. Yeah. The brat sister oh, of yeah, Ferris. Completely different character. Completely yeah. different character. But no, she nailed it. And it was it's it's interesting because you're about to talk about Cynthia Rhodes. They the producers didn't want Jennifer Grey because they thought there's no way that Johnny Castle would pass up on Cynthia Rhodes in favor of Jennifer Grey. Which is kind of a hurtful thing. That's a hurtful thing. But Cynthia Rhodes is amazingly Stunning. beautiful. Yes. I mean, she's amazingly beautiful. Jennifer Grey is very pretty, but it's an entirely different look. I do think that that is a issue in the movie a bit. Okay. I think that Jennifer Grey's character sort of brings out the best in Johnny, and that's what he finds attractive. Yeah. But he seems to match Cynthia Rhodes' character. I mean, dancing, and they do have the same interests and work together. And Anyway, so let's talk about Cynthia Rhodes. Okay. Cynthia Rhodes, clearly, dancer, right? Right. As we know from, from Toto. Toto's Rosanna video. You got it. Where she's Rosanna. Right. Okay. You know who else was in that Rosanna video with her? Some guy that looked a little bit like Patrick Swayze. <sighs> Still unresolved on whether that was Patrick Swayze or not. It is interesting when you go back and look at the Rosanna video, if you missed our Toto episode, there is a dancer in that video that looks so much like Patrick Swayze. He has he has the hair that Patrick Swayze has in The Outsiders, and he has a similar forehead. Yeah, not any. I cannot agree. I really wish that you got Johnny and Penny dancing in the in the Rosanna video. That's yeah. what I really want. I know. Okay, so Cynthia Rhodes, she was in Animotion, the rock band. Oh wow! Okay, did you know that? No, I did not. Famous for the song "Obsession," but uh-huh. have you heard the song "Room to Move"? Big song in 1989. Let me Okay, yeah, I think I kind of remember that one. Yeah, it's a big song in 89. All right. All right. She also married Richard Marks. The song Right Here Waiting is written about her. Oh, that's right. Wow. You know what? She gave up all this stuff. Cynthia Rose, this is why you don't see her anymore. Okay, yeah. She decided that instead of being a dancing superstar, she wanted to be a mom. Aw. And so she's at home. I love it. Yeah, it's wonderful. All right. So hopefully I'm going to blow your mind with this little fact right here. Okay. Jerry Orbach plays Baby's dad, okay? He plays Jake Hausman. Yes. Dr. Hausman. Yes. Okay? Now, he's famous for being in Law and Order and all this stuff. Yeah. Okay? What you may not know is he is the voice of Lumiere from Beauty and the Beast. Be our guest. Be our guest. Put our service to the test. Tie your napkin round your neck, sherry, and we provide the rest. Soup du jour, hot hors d'oeuvre. I actually did know that. My son, in the stage production of Beauty and the Beast, played that part as well. Wow. As a matter of fact, I'm like, you need to watch the movie to get the French accent down because Jerry Orbach, who is not remotely French, does the perfect French accent. (laughs) He sings freaking Be Our Guest. And then you'll be our guest, we our guest, be our guest. Beef, ragout, cheese, souffle, pie and pudding on flambe. Guest, be our guest. I heard it throughout the house. I can't tell you how many, how many times. That's amazing to me. Yeah, Jerry Bo- Jerry Orbach is fantastic and a key ingredient in this movie as well. Now 
here's something that you may not know. Okay. Mrs. Houseman. Yes. The doctor's wife, if you will. Okay. Was not originally supposed to be played by Kelly Bishop. Okay. Now, Kelly Bishop did have a part in the movie, but it wasn't as Baby's mom. Okay. That part was originally supposed to be played by Lynn Lipton. Okay. Do you know who Lynn Lipton is? No. Well, she did another movie in 87 as well. Um, It was called Thundercat's Ho. (laughs) She was the voice of Wiley Kit. And she had done Cheetah, whatever the Cheetah Thundercat was for the series as well. Whoa! That's Lynn uh, Lynn Lipton. And I told you that this set was plagued by problems. People getting hurt, people getting sick. Well, she got sick and she got so sick that she couldn't come back. I don't know if it was like got sick of the movie or really legitimately sick, but she was out. They didn't have a Mrs. Houseman and you have to have baby's mama. Yeah, for sure. So what they did is they said, Kelly Bishop, you are no longer going to play the cougar. The bungalow bunny? The vixen, if you will. the Vivian the vixen. Yes. Who is getting the special dance lessons from Johnny Castle. Uh-huh. You are going to play the part of Mrs. Houseman. And you're going to ease your husband's conscience throughout this movie. And what's interesting, the the putts, you know, the scene where they're golfing together and she's like, what am I doing wrong? And yeah. he's like, sink a putt, sink a putt. Yeah. It was originally supposed to go the other way because Eleanor Bergstein's mother was a world-class golfer and her dad was pretty bad at golf. But Jerry Orbach actually made both of those putts. And so he was so excited about it, they were like, okay, we'll just leave it the way that it is. <laughs> so now Kelly Bishop was supposed to be the vixen, the one who falsely reports that Johnny has stolen the wallet, right? Yeah. Who, who gets caught in bed with Robbie, so they need somebody to fill that part since Kelly Bishop's now playing the mom. Who do they pick? The assistant choreographer. That's exactly... Right. Her name is Miranda Garrison. I mean, she was one of the most believable characters in the movie. Absolutely. It's kind of funny. The assistant choreographer had a memorable and very well-performed part. So she was 37 when she did this movie. Yeah. She looked older. She looks... I mean, she's cougarish. Yeah. I think it's just because we're in our 40s now, but... uh, Right. She had her boobs out front and she looked great, you know? (laughs) It would have been, you could see how Johnny struggled with the decision for a little bit there. You, you really could. It's interesting because she was part of all of the choreography that was going on. Now, the main choreographer for this movie was Kenny Ortega. Okay. And it's funny because after this movie came out, suddenly Kenny is getting called by Oprah and saying, hey, can you come on the Oprah Winfrey show and teach us how to do dirty dancing? To which, when he gets on the show, he says, well, it's kind of like having sex with your clothes on. You don't feel guilty afterwards. <laughs> so here's the thing about Miranda Garrison, right? Okay. As Jennifer Grey learns to dance, we actually see that on screen, okay? Yes. Yeah. So she starts out not so great, and she works up to it. Well, all of that training and stuff we see on screen. Yeah. The scene where Cynthia Rhodes is standing behind her with her hands on her hips and kind of guiding her as Johnny's dancing with her. Amazing scene. That was actually done by Miranda Garrison when she's teaching Jennifer Grey how to do it. And when the producers saw that happening, they thought... This is kind of sexy, you know? Yeah, it's yeah. Kind of- they they walked in, and Kenny Ortega is teaching Jennifer Grey a move. And it's the same position that you see him in. So you've got Kenny Ortega in Patrick Swayze's position, Jennifer Grey in her own position, and Miranda Garrison guiding her hips behind her. And when they walk in and saw that, they said, that has to go in the movie. And it's such a memorable part because you are seeing him starting to fall for her. And you can see Penny still being in love with him but realizing that he's not in love with her. It's all from the look of the eyes. This movie is executed so well by the acting. Yeah. I just don't know if Sarah Jessica Parker and Billy Zane could have pulled off the scene. (laughs) I don't think so. Yeah. A couple more people I want to bring up. Yeah. Okay. Max Cantor. Yes. He plays Robbie the Douche. Yes. He grew up in New York in the Dakota building. What? Like he was friends with John Lennon. What? Yes. Oh, my gosh. Yes. So this was his first major acting role. Okay. Okay. Uh, He quit showbiz to be a journalist. Okay. Okay. Now get this. I don't want to give too many details on this, but <laughs> so he was found dead in his apartment at age 32. He had mm. a mixture of heroin, cocaine, and Prozac that he had been abusing since he had been studying this serial killer in New York. Okay. So get this. The guy's name was Daniel Rakowitz okay. in 1989. 
Okay. Okay. This guy captured and killed a dancer, cut her head off, uh. made soup from her brains. Oh, my. What? And then served it to homeless people in the park. Oh, my gosh. And so that kind of drove this guy to drugs, and he ended up dying. Wow. That is a deep rabbit hole, my friend, but I'm glad you went down it. Whoa. Intense, right? That is nuts. So the people in this movie, a lot of them go on to be other iconic pop culture roles, okay? Yes. Patrick Swayze is Bodie in Point Break. Yep. He's Dalton in Roadhouse. Jennifer Grey, of course, is Jeannie Bueller in Ferris Bueller's Day Off. Jerry Orbach plays Lumiere, the candlestick from Beauty and the Beast. Uh Cynthia Rode is Rosanna. Kelly Bishop is Mrs. Gilmore from the Gilmore Girls. There you go. We've got the electric gun mother inventor Edward Herman together with Kelly Bishop in the Gilmore Girls. I got one more for you, too. Wayne Knight. Oh, right. He's kind of the MC. Yeah. He goes on to play Newman in Seinfeld. Yep. And Dennis Nedry in Jurassic Park. I got one that's even deeper than that. Are you ready for this? Yes. Bruce Morrow. Okay. He's the DJ. Every time you hear a DJ on the radio, it's Bruce Morrow because he was a DJ. Okay. He's also in the movie. He's the magician. Whenever baby is getting cut in half, he you plays got the part. Blue Cross, don't you? <laughs> <laughs> There you go. Wow. Bruce Morrow. Okay, guys, that's going to do it for part one of Dirty Dancing versus Saturday Night Fever. Be sure and come back next week for part two, where we will go into the production of the movie, the reception of the movie, and what's happened since then. Also, Final Judgment. Oh, yeah, Final Judgment. We get to decide which of these two movies is the best. And then for our next two episodes after that, we're going to cover the soundtracks of both of these movies, and we're going to decide which of those two is the best. And then we'll probably rank all four. How about that? That sounds like a challenge. All right. Come back next week, everybody. What do you call your lover boy? Come here, lover boy. (laughs) 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 (laughs)